we were learning truth. We didn't have it all. We still don't have all of it uh, because the Bible is a very deep book and we don't fully understand everything about God yet. But we certainly uh, were involved in a movement that had a great deal of truth. And just having a certain amount of truth is not enough. Uh, There are Protestant commentators who wrote huge volumes of books that had a lot of truth. Uh, They could read the Bible. uh, They could interpret some of it, and some of it even in spiritual geometry to understand a certain amount of, uh, let's say, a parable that it had spiritual implications. So they had quite a bit of truth. But without the Spirit of God, they could not put it all together and understand what we, weak, uneducated, not too bright human beings came to understand about God and the Bible. But in any case, over a period of time, we allowed that specialness or that setting apart of God to affect us in our attitudes until we came to feel, as a church... Uh, that we were overall better than anyone else, and we're headed for salvation, and they're not, unless and until they repent at whatever time in life they're presented the truth and their minds are opened. But in any case, we became slack and lackadaisical and not really pushing uh, toward God's kingdom in the way that He intended us to, or to be pushing toward being like God in the way that He intended us to do. We have to understand that the human mind, if allowed to drift, will drift away from God. There is not a human mind on earth that will in and of itself drift toward God. It won't happen. We saw many scriptures last week to show that our mind is diametrically opposed to God. Uh, It does not like godly things. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. And I spent the whole sermon showing that there is none righteous, no, not one. That a human being of himself and by himself and for himself cannot be righteous, not in the terms of God's righteousness. He can think he's righteous. He can think his family's righteous, but he's not, unless that righteousness is of God. Any other righteousness, and I use that word carefully (laughs) because it isn't true righteousness, is self-righteousness. The righteousness of me, my empirical family, those I know, those that I have as friends, because obviously uh, if they're my friends, they must be okay. But it's all about self, is what it all boils down to. And I hope I didn't discourage you last week. I think the scriptures we read, we've all read many, many times before, and we understand that there is no righteousness in us. But on the other hand, we like to kid ourselves day to day and moment to moment that we're okay, otherwise we might have to do something about it. I was texting with someone this very morning about this subject, and uh, one comment that was made was that where we drift shows what we really want in love. 
your mind does not drift to God. Now, by the power of His Spirit, we might think on God and think about God. But the human mind of itself will drift to the things that it really likes. And so you can find out how you're, who you're and what your gods are by where your mind goes. <laughs> it's, it's really pretty simple. Where does my mind go if left unattended? And uh, there you will find what you really want and what you really love. Because that's, that's the bottom line. That's where the mind goes. It goes to what it likes. Now, I'm going to go back to Revelation 3 for a little bit here. <clears throat> because I promised you would see, try to see our way out of this morass of self-righteousness we find ourselves in. But he says, he knows our works... They're not either cold or hot. They weren't. We were just drifting along. And therefore, we were slowly drifting further and further from God. And even as an organization, uh, those signs were there. Uh, at the college, we drifted into, instead of having sports for exercise and goodwill and fellowship, they drifted into having uh, basketball matches with other worldly colleges. And uh, then we started getting graffiti in the locker room and you know, all kinds of things that didn't belong. And some of those athletes liked the looks of some of our girls. And, you know, things just got worse and worse over a period of time. And uh, I don't know, I, I used to sit and it bothered me. I'd be on Sabbath morning as a student and I could hear these contractors out there working on the gymnasium or I was out of college when they built the uh, so-called house for God, but they worked there on Sabbath too. But I remember, because the gymnasium was just across the street from my dorm, and all of this busyness on Saturday, and it was told us that, well, they're worldly contractors, and uh, if they don't get this finished on schedule, then uh, there's penalties and all kinds of things, and so we just have to let them work. No, you don't. You write into the contract that you do not work on Saturdays and you give them extra time to be sure that if they work Sunday through Friday, uh, they have time to accomplish it. And if they want to work from sundown to, to sunrise on Monday and Tuesday to get it done and work double or triple shifts, fine, but you don't work Saturday. Just write it into the contract. And if they don't agree with that, give the contract to somebody else. But we were kind of, even back then, that was in the 60s, beginning to drift toward making compromises with what we knew. They became, and they were independent contractors, but they were still our servants building a building for us. So uh, they were out there actively working on that day. And uh, it bothered me then, not that I knew anything much as a student, but uh, even I could see that, well, why didn't you just write into the contract, you don't work Saturday? <laughs> you know, why didn't you just do that? And I'm just picking a few things out of the air uh, that come to mind about how we had sort of drifted into uh, an uncaring or 
lukewarm condition where, well, this is okay, that's okay, well, that's all right. Uh, and not using Scripture to say this is what God says do and this is what God says don't do. <clears throat> now, I think there are... There's, you have to use good common sense and logic as well. Let's say we go to the feast and we stay in motel rooms. We can't tell that motel, that's their business. We can't tell them, you can't change any rooms. You can't uh, work. You have to shut down the office on uh, the holy days. Uh, they wouldn't rent rooms to us. Now, I can request the maid myself <clears throat> that she not do my room on the holy day. You know, so I, I just don't need, I don't have to explain that to her. I don't need sheets and towels tomorrow. These, I, didn't, I took a bath. These aren't too bad. Uh, you don't need to do my room today. Uh, you know, we can do things like that, um, but we can't interfere with their business. And uh, even at, in Christ's day, he was born in a manger because there was no room at the inn. And he may have been born on Feast of Trumpets. He might have been born uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Who knows? But his family would have been, they would have rented a room had there been one. There wasn't, so he stayed in the barn. <laughs> uh, but they still rented the barn, I guess. Probably paid less. Uh, but nevertheless, they were there. And it was okay for them to rent out lodging. Everybody didn't have to move out of their room and sit in the street because it was the holy day. You see what I mean? Uh, so... It is not wrong to accrue wealth on the Sabbath. Do you understand that? It's wrong to work or have your servants work on the Sabbath, but the accrual of wealth on the Sabbath is not wrong. Do you ever think about that? Do your peaches and apples quit growing on Saturday? Do your cows quit milk on Saturday? Does your wheat and your corn grow on the Sabbath? Yes, it does. And that is an accrual of wealth toward the harvest. Your harvest would be a lot later if all growth stopped on Saturdays. Does your bank account or your savings account, uh, if any, draw interest on the Sabbath? Yes, it does. Do you turn it back to the bank and say, Oh, no, this, this $3 was earned on the Sabbath and I can't earn money on the Sabbath. Now, it's wrong for you to work and to make money in that sense on the Sabbath. It's not wrong for wealth to be accrued on the Sabbath because God set the system up where that happens every Sabbath. We need to make distinctions on what uh, God does and what God allows as opposed to what we would be doing. But we have to make righteous judgments based on Scripture. And that's all I'm doing here. Uh, that was probably a new thought to some of you, that the accrual of wealth is okay. Uh, you're not to buy and sell on the Sabbath, and yet your mortgage interest doesn't stop on Sabbath either, does it? You pay the bank uh, interest for on that mortgage seven days a week. So a system set up like that is not wrong. It's what we do within that system that counts. Uh, 
But that's, that's somewhat off the subject here. I was just trying to get onto things showing how we drift away from God. We do not drift toward God. If you're in a river uh, and you're treading water, you're going downstream. You have to resist. You have to swim hard to go upstream. And for a human being to get close to God requires a great deal of effort. And I think that's what we were lacking a great deal at, at the time that we began to come apart in well, worldwide and as we drifted downhill to that point, is that we weren't putting out the effort we needed to stay God-centered and aligned with God. And therefore, on a spiritual reckoning, he says, this is just warm. You've got the truth. You're just not doing anything. You're drifting. In which way were we drifting? We were drifting back toward the world. And that is shown very conclusively by where those who stayed with Worldwide went when they left the church was right back into the world. And we were all drifting that direction. We need to understand and grasp that. And that's why we are where we are. And it wasn't just the organization, because a, an organization is made up of individuals. So individuals had to also be drifting in order for the organization and its leadership to be drifting. You cannot stand still. Uh, we have to move forward. I mean, I use the expression again this morning. Uh, sometimes we tell each other, well, hang in there. Well, often by itself, that's not a wrong expression. We do have to hang in there. But on the other hand, if we're just hanging there, <laughs> we're not making any movement. Now, sometimes maybe about all we can do, given circumstances in our nature, is kind of hang in there. <coughs> but the advice at the Red Sea was not just hang in there on the beach, it was move forward. Uh, so moving forward always has to be at the top of our list on a spiritual level. So while we were sitting back, and Zephaniah even talks about that. How about those who rest on their lees? It, it's a, it's a, a rowing or boating term where you have the oar locks and you're not rowing, you're just sitting with the oars there in the water. And if you're not rowing, which way is the boat going? Down stream or whichever the ways, way the wind's blowing on the lake is the way it will drift so he uses that analogy back there and it's essentially the same thing as what we're reading here in Revelation 3 so he says because you say we have this attitude of we're okay we're in the church of God everything will be alright you don't really grasp that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked now last week I spent the time showing us that we are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked, spiritually speaking. Physically, we're dressed. Spiritually, we ate. But, I mean, physically we ate. But spiritually, we came to be these things. Now today, let's talk more about what to do about it. Now, if you're downtown, and maybe you've been in there in a dream. I doubt if you've been there physically, but let's say... You're in downtown St. George here, and you're physically naked and uh, blind and hungry, haven't eaten, and you have nothing. Where do you go? What do you do? You're homeless. You're naked. You're hungry. 
thirsty. Well, you kind of have to go to somebody that might give you some clothes, might give you some food and water, uh, might take you by the hand and guide you to a safe place. In other words, turn to where some help might be found. Now, let's focus on that today. And we can start right here. Verse 18. I counsel you. Here, if you find yourself in this position, I counsel you, I advise you, I tell you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Now, where are you going to go if you're self-righteous and not aligned properly with God? You go to Him. He's the one you're trying to get an alignment with. You're not trying to get in alignment with the Joneses next door, as the story goes. You're not trying to get in alignment with other members of the church, necessarily. You're trying to get in alignment with God. So, if our alignment with Him is not right, and it wasn't, then we go to Him, because He is the source of righteousness. He is the source of good attitudes. He is the source of faith and hope and of love. He's the source of everything good in the universe. You can't do any better than go to God. You can go to self-help books in this world, and mankind has decided that he can write books that are going to help people have good self-esteem and feel really good about themselves and go through life just humming merrily because they've been taught to have good self-esteem. It's just wrong. It's just backward. All those self-help books are designed to make you feel good about yourself. And yet, we read how many scriptures last week to show how we don't, should not feel good about ourselves. We are not okay. The only time we will become, on, become okay is when we are in perfect alignment with the Creator God of heaven and earth and His Son. Then we'll be okay. And do you know when that's going to happen? In the resurrection, when our mind is changed, our body is changed, when we become immortal and eternal. As long as we are in this physical frame, we are not okay. By God's definition. Your definition doesn't matter. The self-help book guy's definition doesn't matter. Now, should we then go sit in a corner and eat worms? No. He tells us, don't sit still. Don't go eat worms. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. So we go to God and we find gold, but it won't be easy. A furnace gets very hot, and it will, done properly, get rid of extraneous metals and other things that make gold impure. But it has to get very hot to do that. So God uses that analogy several times in the Bible about silver and gold and how it is refined and put to heat in order to purify it. 
So what he's saying here is you have to come to me and you have to be willing to have the heat put on. This is how we overcome the problem. He goes on to say, you may be made rich where are our treasures to be. They need to be in heaven. If you don't have any treasure in heaven, anything you amassed on this earth is going to go away when you die anyhow. It doesn't do you any good eternally. It's only that which God has reserved for you in heaven. And white raiment that you may be clothed. The filthy spotted with the world garments that we tend to wear around uh, don't get it. We have to have the righteousness of God. That the shame of your nakedness do not appear, so that it is not obvious, cannot be seen, that you are spiritually naked. That people can look and say, now there's someone who is being dressed in righteousness because of the way you act, the way you talk, the way your attitude is. Anoint your eyes with eye salve, spiritual eye salve, that you may see. Well, where do we find light to see? The Word of God. Our ways are diametrically opposed to God. The Bible explains the ways of God. It explains how God thinks, how He acts, what He is. And that's our goal, is to act and think and be like God. So that's the ISAV, is the Word of God. Now notice verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Where have we read that in the Bible? Now, the very fact that the church came apart and was split and divided and splintered proves that God loves us. You're thinking, boy, he must not like us. Look what he just did to us. No, the very fact that it happened proves he loves us. Because everyone that he loves, he rebukes and chastens. Why are they rebuked and chastened? Because they're too much like themselves and not enough like God. We're too much like Satan. We're too much like the people around us. We're not enough like God. You know, if you're in a sorority, if you're in a club, you're in a company, you're in any group of human beings, you work at trying to be like the other club members, or the sorority members, or the members on your football or basketball team. You try to conform to the way they are. So when we're in the church, <clears throat> if we're not careful we will conform to how the people around us are. That's not what we need to be doing. We have to compare ourselves continually to God. And that way, we always have to struggle and to fight because it's not hard to be, in our estimation at least, as good as somebody else. And it is only natural that we will make comparisons between ourselves and others. And we will work it in such a way that most of the time we'll come out on the good end of that stick. 
But any time you compare yourself to God, you're going to get the short end of the stick, aren't you? So you always have to compare yourself to God, not to some other person. It has been remarked, and I've said it myself over the years at times, that sometimes the minister's lowest standard is a lot of members' highest standard. Well, I saw the minister do this. I saw the minister do that. Therefore, that's, I can do that, and that's as good as I need to be. Well, what if he did something that was ungodly? Is that good enough for you? He will, you know. Is that good enough for you? No. You can't compare yourself with any other member. You can't compare yourself with the minister. You can only compare yourself to God. That's the only safe thing to do. And when God compared us to himself, and that's what he did, he decided to blow us apart and teach us some lessons. Let's go back to Hebrews 12 and see this same thing. Hebrews 12, verse 4. We have not yet resisted to blood striving against sin. And they're making the comparison there between Christ and us. Now, Paul is saying you need to compare yourself to Christ. If you think you're okay, you're making wrong comparisons. <coughs> he resisted to blood. And his own blood was spilled against sin. And we haven't gone that far. And if you can't make that comparison, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children, My son, despise not you the chastening of the eternal, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. There's a different reaction that has to be made than that. Now, we as a church and we as individuals then have been rebuked and chastened of God and still are being because the dividing and separating and spewing is not finished. Therefore, if it is not finished, it means that we have not yet gotten to the attitude and the level that God needs us to be. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. If you, if you can handle it, if you can take it, if you deal with it, then he'll treat you as a son, not as a foreigner, not as an alien, but as a son. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? Now, I know most people's kids are brats and surly and got wrong attitudes and disrespectful and basically only yours were the good kids and if you don't believe that criticize somebody's kid and see where you get it's just like your lawyer and my lawyer you know yours is a shark tank blood sucking money grabbing uh, lech but ours is a very much loved member of the family that's the way people tend to look at lawyers. And that's the way we look at our kids. Well, I can't do that to that poor child. We've got a whole world out there. Oh, you can't spank your child. You can't... You've got to show them that they're wonderful. 
and you did a good job. Once in a while I play solitaire on my computer, and I'll have a really nasty game where I only turned over five cards and the game's over. And a little message will come on the screen. You have run out of moves. Good game. And I'm thinking, I didn't have a good game. I just lost by 40 cards. And you're telling me you played a good game because this world is blowing smoke in our ear and wants us to think that we're just good all the time and that we do so much good. So we tell our children all the time, good job. They don't always do a good job. But we try to make that which is bad look good. We, well, we don't want to hurt their little psyche. Their self-esteem might suffer if we criticize them. So even our whole grading system in school has gotten to the point, oh, well, you can't give A, B, C's, D's, and F's. You've got to give them, I don't even know how they do it, almost good. <laughs> you know, and an F's almost good. Or whatever. Because you can't tell them that they're not just fine. Well, God's not that way. Did we read this? If we are without chastisement, whereof all our partakers, and all of us are, then are you bastards and not sons. If God does not chasten you, does not correct you, guide you, and lead you, and paddle you, you're in the bastard category. Fatherless. A father who does not may have a physical child, but if that father does not correct and guide and lead and chasten and make that child do what he's supposed to do, he's raising a fatherless child, even though he's there. Because the child does not have the benefits of what a father should do. We misunderstand parenting. Your job as a parent isn't to make that child feel good until he leaves home at age 30. Your job is to take care of that child, to put your hands about it, and help keep it from falling and breaking its nose until it's able to walk. And when it's able to walk and not fall over its own feet, you remove your hands a little. And then you teach it this, and you teach it that. And your whole exercise over time is to remove your hands further and further from that child until he can stand alone and be mature and approach the world as a mature adult when he's of age 20. Where he does not need you to mollycoddle, to hold, to support to take care of, to tell him how wonderful he is. No, your job is to support only enough to get them to grow up and to chasten them and to correct them when they do something that is not mature. Your job isn't to take care of them from cradle to grave. It's to raise them to be responsible and then make them be responsible. And if they can't be responsible, then somebody else will take over where you left off. They're called courts and jailers. 
But people don't understand that, so they don't correct their children, and they grow up like bastards, just like they didn't even have parents. Parents haven't taught them to be upstanding adults, responsible adults. God wants us to be responsible, mature, righteous, spiritual adults. And we're still children. So we still get corrected and chastened, and that proves that He loves us is because He wants us to straighten up. And that's where the church is now. It's in a straighten-up mode. Let's go on down. He says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? No. If our parents were doing their job right, we respected what they were doing. And we'd better respect God when He puts the screws to us and be in subjection to Him so that we can live eternally. That's the whole point of what we're going through as a church right now. For they truly, for a few days, few years, chastened us after their own pleasure, as they saw fit. Uh, and they like to have a peaceful household. They like to have kids that didn't throw a glass of milk across the room. So they would take whatever steps were necessary to keep us from acting out, if they're good parents. But they did it so that there might be peace in their own household. I, if my kids spilled a glass of milk at the table, they got a swat or two for it. We didn't just tell them, oh, it's okay, honey, it was just an accident. They'll just keep having accidents until you tell them or you show them in some way that an accident causes penalties, so be more careful. And they learn then, oh, if I, I better be careful what I do. Because if I break this or spill this, there are repercussions. You're teaching them to be responsible. You're going to give them a car and you haven't taught them responsibility? Bending a car is a lot worse than bending a milk glass. Maybe by 16 they need to be more responsible than they are. But it's a tough task. And don't you think it's a tough, tough task for God? Yep, sometimes you have to bite the bullet and do what's needed. And God saw His church, and He says, I think this one needs to be crushed. This needs to be splintered, split. i got to get their attention somehow. So they, they did it until we were 20, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. So what's His goal? When God puts us in the fire, when He puts the heat on us, He's trying to get us to turn to holiness, to His righteousness, not our own. We judged ourselves righteous enough. We figured we would be Righteous enough to be accounted worthy to go to a place of safety, didn't we? Or whatever. No. We weren't. We got to partake of His holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It's not fun to chasten a child, nor is it fun for the child to be chastened. And we've used the expression, this hurts me more than it does you. And there's no child ever believe that yet. But God is hurt by our conduct 
And he loves us, and he doesn't want to have to do what he's done to us, but he has to, knowing that if we're going to become righteous according to his standard and what he is, some changes have to be made. And you know what? People don't change for the better on their own. They drift toward unrighteousness. That is the entire history of mankind from Adam and Eve to this day, is that we drift toward selfishness and violence and vanity and ego and pride and me first. That's the way we go. So God says, all right, we're going to change that and we're going to have God first now. (laughs) Not me first, God first. That's going to take some doing, believe me. So it doesn't seem to be joyous, but what is the result? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised or who are changed thereby, who respond properly. I've seen parents say, well, okay, you say I've got to spank the kid. So they spank the kid, and the kid gets madder. Well, that didn't work. No, if he's still got a nasty attitude, spank him again. And if he still has an attitude, you're still not done. Spank him again. Now, when he shows peace and submission and love and respect and humility and meekness instead of anger and pulling away and that look on that face of rebellion... When that's gone, you're done. When he's humble enough to sit in your lap now after the paddling and be loved and held and kissed without pulling away, you've done your job. So it's not a matter of the method being wrong. You didn't know what you were trying to do. You're just trying to get them to quit it. And they quit it, but they still got the same attitude. It's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. God is going to keep this up on the church until the attitude changes. And only 10% are going to change their attitude and start seeking God with their whole heart. And the rest are going to go into a deeper punishment, the Great Tribulation, where the fire will increase and the pressure will get greater And if they don't repent there, they'll go into a lake of fire, which is an even hotter fire. That's what the book of Revelation 22 says. So the sooner we get rid of the rebellion and trying to go our way and start thinking God's way and doing God's will and getting in alignment with Him, the sooner He's going to take us on His knee and bless us. It's all about attitude. Proper correction, when finished, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that submit to it and accept it and change their attitudes. So then he says, here's your reaction. Here's what you should do when you get chastened of God. Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees that think, Oh, I can't do this. This is too much for me. I'm too weak. I'm too this or I'm too that. Takes effort. Now, I have not always been old and feeble. 
there was a time I was 20 years old and I thought I could whip the world and a bag of wildcats all at once. But now that I'm getting older and more feeble, I realize that making straight paths for my feet even to the kitchen some mornings isn't all that easy. <laughs> or picking up a coffee cup without breaking it isn't all that easy because I'm not as coordinated when I first wake up as I used to be. And my knees are not as strong as they used to be. They're more feeble now than they were. So we have to recognize that we're weak, we're not righteous, we have faults, we have problems, and then don't just sit down and say, well, I guess it's over for me, I can't do anything about it. No, he says, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Your foot healed back crooked when you broke it, and now you want to kind of go in circles to the right. No, he says, make straight paths for your feet. You might have been lame. You might have been feeble. You might have been unrighteous. You may have been going the wrong way. Straighten it out. Go the right way. Let it rather be healed straight. We're all crooked, aren't we? We're all perverse. Once we get chastened, we need to get straight with God. In alignment with God. That's what it's all about. And how will that be manifested? Verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the eternal. We have to do those things which create peace, not war. Now, human nature creates war. Whether it's between nations or churches or business associates or husbands and wives are our children, sibling rivalry and warfare? Human nature makes war. It makes war because it puts itself ahead of everybody else. And when you put yourself ahead of others, you hurt their feelings, or they let them, their feelings be hurt. You know, this offense and giving offense goes both directions. We are not to offend anyone. And on the other hand, God says, do not be offended by anyone. Well, somebody does something offensive to us, it is our responsibility not to blame them. It is our responsibility not to take offense. And it is only natural for us to take offense when somebody berates us or scolds us or corrects us or tells us we're not what we ought to be, or puts us down, it is our human nature to be offended by that. Now God says, no, do not let anyone offend you. You're the one taking offense. You're the one wrong. If you get offended, you are the one wrong. Now they may be wrong too by saying something offensive. But you're just as wrong by taking offense. That's something you do. It's something a lot that you allow to happen to you. And it does not make peace. It doesn't make any difference how offensive someone is to you. You are not to take offense, period, ever. Get it? No. 
You didn't get it. All right, let's talk about Christ a moment. He had every foul, rotten, ridiculous, untrue thing said about him that could possibly ever be said. And he was utterly righteous. He had not said, thought, done any of those things. So he was utterly, falsely accused of everything. And he did not become offended at all. He is our example. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. That wasn't an offense. He did not get offended. How easily are you offended? How quick will you defend yourself? Well, I didn't do that. You're lying. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. We will justify ourselves. We will try to keep others from having a bad opinion about us. Boy, will we defend ourselves. And we'll defend our family. I've heard husbands or wives, goes both ways, sit and just run their mate down. Oh, terrible things. The most all, that one person I wondered who was the most married, who was the most wonderful person on earth, has become the worst person on earth in their mind. And boy, they'll sit there and they'll run them down until you agree with them and say, yeah, that person is rotten. And then they're on your back. I've seen that happen so often because it's part of them. They can criticize them all they want, but don't you dare do it. That's human nature. That's selfishness. Do not take offense, no matter what. Then you are like God. Now, when you take offense, you're being self-righteous. You're saying, I am not what you say I am. I'm better than that. I'm righteous. I'm holy. I didn't do that. That's what's happening in your head. That's what's happening in your head when you take offense. Now, when you give offense, you're also being selfish and you're not thinking of the other person because you're saying things that would be offensive to them. So either way, it's selfishness. It's not godly. Is it any wonder he's doing to us what he's doing to us? What did James say? Let's go to the book of James real quickly. Where do wars and fightings come from among you? He's talking to the church here. Just as Paul was speaking to it there in Hebrews 12. and says, be peaceable and holy with all men. Where does all the trouble come from that's in the church today? It comes of your own lusts, your covetousness, your selfishness. That's the basis of lust and covetousness is selfishness. I want what I want. And right now I want you gone. <laughs> you know, I want you out of my hair. I want you put down, or I want you to feel worse than I am. It is selfishness that wars in your members. You lust and you don't have. You kill and you desire to have. You want peace, you want security, you want compatibility, you want the body all to be together in peace, as God says that it should be welded together in peace. But it isn't here. You fight and war, 
yet you have not because you ask not. You don't turn to God. You do things in a carnal human way. You're not looking to God. What did Christ say there in Revelation 3? I counsel you to buy of me gold tried under pressure, under heat. You don't receive it because you ask with the wrong attitude and for the wrong purpose, amiss. You're missing the mark. You're missing God's will. That you may consume it upon your own lust. That is, you'll get your own way. What do people want when they have an altercation, an argument? They want their own way. That leads to fighting and war, is us wanting our way. Did the thought come to Christ's mind? They are treating me unfairly. They are accusing me of things I did not do. Did that come to his mind? Yes, it did. He did not accept it. He rejected it. He was in all points tempted as we are. So he recognized that those were false accusations. The difference between him and us is he responded differently. He took a different attitude. He said, forgive them. They don't even realize what they're doing. And most of the time when we act out or do the wrong thing or react the wrong way, we don't really realize what we're doing either, do we? We might, 30 minutes or an hour or a day later, say, Oh, man, was I ever being selfish? Did I ever say the wrong thing? We might even tell somebody else, I sure put my foot in my mouth. But in the heat of the battle... You were trying to shove their foot down their mouth, not admit that you were putting your foot in your own mouth, because we are selfish to the core. You consume it on trying to get your own way. You adulterers and adulteresses. Now you might say, I'm righteous, I don't commit adultery. Yes, you do. You commit adultery every day that goes by. Now, if someone's caught in a physical act, oh, they're adulterers. Oh, they're black. Well, they are. But we forget that we do the same thing every day. Maybe not physically, but we certainly do spiritually. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. How does the world live? Me first, my way, always. Selfish to the core. So if we go and make friends with the world, we're making friends with a philosophy of me first. I have to feel good about me. I have to feel good about my self-esteem. I have to be wonderful. I have to always do a good job. I have to feel so good about myself. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? I don't know whether I have time or not. I was going to go there about the Pharisee and the, the publican. The Pharisee is trying to do everything right. Keep every little part of the commandment. But his attitude is, I'm better than you. 
I keep all these laws better than you, therefore I'm spiritually ahead of you and better than you. And he looks up to God and says, oh, how wonderful I am. And he even makes prayers in the streets. And he blows a trumpet when he's about to put money in the offering box so everybody can see him do it and watch him. He won't just throw some in. He'll count it in there to make sure they understand how much he's giving. Now, we don't do that because we know the story of the Pharisee and the publican, do we? We have our ways. We are told to pray in private, to go to God. And it's a private thing between us and God. Now, the Pharisees did it in the streets so they could, men could see how much and how well and how wonderful their prayers were. So we modify it a bit in the church. We don't do it out for in the public for people to see, but we come out and we'll tell them. Well, I, I got my prayer and my Bible study in today. Uh, I, I would have done this, but I was busy doing my prayer and my Bible study. And this little halo begins to form. A little halo begins to form. But you know what? The guy they're talking to can't see it because it's forming inside the head. That little halo is that warm, fuzzy, bright glow inside our brain as we try to impress somebody with how righteous we are because we prayed and we studied. Same thing the Pharisees doing. Just once removed. It's all about attitude is what it's about. So, if we come out bragging about our prayer and our study, our prayer and our study hasn't done us a bit of good. Because our attitude is still self-righteous. We're trying to impress ourselves and them about what a good job we're doing with our prayer and our study. We're still a Pharisee. In attitude, we're just as self-righteous as the Pharisee was. Did the publican say... You know, I've, I've, I've been working so hard and I've been doing my prayer and my study. No. The publican put his head on his chest and said, I can't even look up to God. I can't even look up at the people around me because I am so wretched and sinful and weak and I'm not anything like God and therefore I won't brag. I don't have anything to brag about. And you know what? We don't either. Sometimes we like to tell others about how much we serve. And at the same time, we like to say how much somebody won't serve. So we like to make comparisons between our level of service and their level of service. Can't do that. God says, don't even you think about how much you serve. Didn't he say that? Don't you even think about it, much less say it to anybody else. He said, don't let your left hand or your right hand know what the other one is doing. Just be so busy doing God's will, His way, serving others, helping others, and don't keep score, don't keep track, don't pat yourself on your little back about how much you serve. No, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just do and don't take credit. You know what? Your pennies in heaven all drain out of the piggy bank when you brag. 
when you pat yourself on. I mean, bragging doesn't have to be overt and outward towards somebody else. It's when you brag in your own mind. That little halo that grows inside your brain that nobody else can see. You can see it because you feel the warm glow. But they can't. They say, well, what's that person bragging about? That's what they say. Why are you bragging? So when we think selfishly like the Word here tells us we do, like the world does, we're committing adultery. How so? Christ wants us as his bride. And he says that we are to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So that all of our thoughts are godly thoughts. They're not selfish. They're not worldly. They're not sinful. They are all in alignment with God. Every thought. Now, none of us have accomplished that. But that's the goal. That's the standard. And anything short of that is unfaithfulness to God, which is spiritual adultery. Any thought you have, any thought you entertain that is ungodly is spiritual adultery. And there's not anyone here that doesn't think something out of line with God's way and selfish and sinful. It just doesn't happen any day for any of us. So we commit adultery every day, don't we? Is it just as despicable to God as physical adultery is to us? Yes, it is. Christ wants us as his bride forevermore. And he wants us to be utterly, totally faithful in everything we think forevermore. Satan the devil was faithful in every thought to God until he committed spiritual adultery and began to think thoughts separate or out of alignment with God. So what is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is anything you think that is contrary to God. It's your own standard, your own level of righteousness. It's your own assessment of yourself and of others. That's why we can't judge and be judgmental and condemnative of others. Why we should not be negative toward others. Now, it's one thing to tell you you shouldn't be negative and gossiping, but I want to tell you why it's wrong. Because God doesn't think that way. When we think that way, we're thinking like the world and Satan, aren't we? God is positive. He looks on the good. He wants us to have salvation. He's not sitting up there trying to condemn us to the lake of fire. It's not his attitude. So why do we condemn one another? Why do we condemn another servant of God when he's trying to save them, we're trying to accuse them? That is satanic. When you think negatively and gossip about another human being, you are committing spiritual adultery, you are being unfaithful to God, who 
will protect and defend his bride-to-be. And if you don't learn to be faithful and dependable to Christ, you will not be part of his bride. That's the bottom line. Now, do we have any room for our own righteousness? It has to be God's righteousness. Now, he tells us we're unrighteous is the reason he's chastening us right now. And he says in Isaiah 54 that we will come to have righteousness which is of him, not our own. What we tend to have as our own righteousness, our own standard. I don't set the standards. God does. The standard is his word. The standard is his way of thinking. I have nothing to do with setting the standards. All I have to do is preach God's standard. So don't look at me when you say, he sets the standard. I do not. Now, if you follow my example, you will fall short of the standard. Because I don't live up to it. I try, I work at it, but I don't every day. People accuse me of doing this or doing that. Most of what they've accused me of, I haven't physically done. But you know what? They got the right guy. I lie, I cheat, I steal, I'm a fraudulent Christian, I commit adultery against Christ every day of my life. I'm despicable. No wonder he's got me in the fire. No wonder we're all in the fire and being spit out and spewed and splintered. It's not us. It's our relationship with God that suffers. That's why he says, Counsel, I counsel you by of me righteousness and holiness. That's the standard. And we can't do it on our own. We cannot. Christ said clearly, Of myself, I can do nothing. What did he do? He went to the Father to get strength and power and help to live a righteous life with every thought faithful to his Father in heaven. He would leave his disciples. He would leave the multitudes, go up on a mountain where, as he put it, prayer was wont to be made or easier to pray, to get closer to the God of creation when you get away from the world and man and man's entertainment and man's things and get out where you're not bothered by anything and you can pray to God himself without distraction. That's what Christ did. He'd go up on the mountain to pray. Now, Acts 2 shows that the disciples had no power to do anything spiritually. Oh, they were still eating and drinking and sleeping and walking around, but they had no power. Acts 2, God gave them the power to influence properly, to preach truth, to help, to guide, to serve. Came from God. Up until that morning, they could do nothing. And suddenly they had power to do from God's Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 says, Not by might, not by strength, but, or, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal to Zerubbabel, 
who is in charge of building the Latter-day Temple. He says, you're not going to do it. Not without my help. See, the righteousness, the power, everything that we can and should do has to come from God. Because as we saw last week, it isn't in us. It isn't in us. We have no right to say, I am righteous. We have no right to think of ourselves as good. Because we're not. Human nature is evil and nasty and dirty and deceitful and selfish. And the whole world is sold in that. Even the smart people that write the books are sold on that. That's why you're committing adultery if you go to the world for what you think you need. Or make friends with the world. Because they're not like Christ. They're not faithful to Christ. And you have to be. And if you're around that, it makes it harder to be faithful. Because you tend to think like they think if you're around them. Zechariah 11, the two witnesses can't do a thing. They can't do anything. And then God says, I will give them power to do this and this and this and that. It has to come from Him. So when He says in Isaiah 54, their righteousness is of me, that means that they have bought gold, tried in the fire. They have sought Him with their whole heart. They have changed their attitudes and become zealous and they quit committing adultery spiritually and quit lying about their spiritual situation and come to face the truth and done something about it. They will have repented. They will have changed their attitudes. So when they are gathered to build the temple, that 10%, God will be able to say of them, their righteousness is of me. It isn't their own righteousness. So what we had in Worldwide Church of God, Sardis, a dead church, was self-righteousness. That's what we were. And to a great degree, still are. Do we still get offended or give offense? Yes, we do. Do we think thoughts that aren't godly and righteous? Yes, we do. It never ends. It just never ends. Child rearing never ends. Have you ever seen parents slap their head? Oh, man, if I could just get away from these kids for a little while. <laughs> as long as you got them there, it never ends. And the reason it never ends is because that child is selfish to the core. He wants his way. He doesn't want you telling him what to do. Because when he's 40 years old, he'll start a fight because nobody's going to tell me what to do. Pride, vanity, selfishness, anger was not taught out of him. So he's still acting like a three-year-old brat without correction. You ain't going to tell me what to do. And the whole world has that attitude toward God. They throw God out the window. We'll accept evolution will accept Scientology, will accept anything but God. Pope tells us to keep Sunday. Hey, we'll do what the Pope says. God says keep Saturday. Not on your life. We are enmity to God by nature. 
And any righteousness that we think we have is self-righteousness. That which we've conjured up and made in our own little halo inside our... Well, maybe I'll, I won't even go there. Maybe I'll save that for next week because it's, it's a whole other subject that's related. But he tells us how to solve this problem of this church, God's church, being splintered and spewed and punished because we were unfaithful to Him. And that is to go to Him with a contrite heart. That's what David did in Psalm 51. He went to God and he says, Create a clean heart in me. I was selfish. I put myself first. I committed adultery. I murdered. I was completely out of line with the way you are, Father. Purge me, wash me, cleanse me, create a right spirit and heart within me. The heart you've got is deceitful and desperately wicked, and so is mine. So we need God to create something in us that is not there through His Spirit. So that instead of being faithful once in a while, we become more faithful more of the time and our goal is the ultimate, absolute standard of being utterly faithful in every thought. Now, how is there room for any self-righteous thought? How is there room for anything but the publican who dropped his head and said, Be merciful on me, a sinner? There is no other attitude for us to have because that's where we are. We have no right, no excuse to brag or crow about anything we do or say or serve or give or do. We have to hang our, says, uh, hang our heads and say, Dear God in heaven, I committed adultery against you today. Forgive me. Now, that doesn't mean we have to go in the corner and eat worms and die. What it means is we need to come to understand how unrighteous we are as compared to a holy, righteous God. So that we do everything we can to achieve holiness and be peaceable among all men. Because any time there is a quarrel, any time there is a fight, any time there are negative emotions, there was selfishness, Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy involved in some way. Or there would have been no conflict. Because if we are truly humble, we will never take offense. If we are truly humble, we'll think and we won't give offense. But we have not achieved that. In any good we think we are or have, then, is self-righteousness. It is not the righteousness of God. So how do you come to have the righteousness of God compared to what you got right now? You start bringing your thoughts into alignment with God's thoughts. It's a moment-by-moment process all day long to be more like God and less like the world and less like you, but to be more like Him. It's a daunting task, but with His Spirit it can be done. Christ did it. And he has set the example that we should follow in his steps. We're not as close to the Father as he was. But we 
need to be working toward it. Thankfully, he is so loving and so giving and so merciful that he doesn't throw us out, but keeps saying, come on, come on. Let's just have 999,000 wrong thoughts today instead of a million. <laughs> you know, or whatever. I'm just pulling a number. I don't know how many thoughts you have in a day. And I don't know that we need to tote them up. But I'll guarantee you this. Whatever it is, you've got a pretty good percentage of bad ones. So you've got to work on it day by day. And thank God. And be able to say... Have mercy on me, a sinner. We have no room to criticize anyone else. We have no room to condemn anybody else. We have no room to put anybody else down. Gossip and backbiting, we have no room to do. Because we are such sinners ourselves that it's the pot calling the kettle black. You can't in righteousness condemn or put down anybody else. You just can't do it. Because God isn't that way. That's what Satan is. He's the accuser of the brethren. God is the protector, defender, and forgiver of the brethren. If you're going to be like God, you have to be a perfecter of a well, perfecter works, a protector, a helper toward righteousness with everyone. Now, did God call it right when he told us we were self righteous? Yes, he did. Because our righteousness is not on the level of God's righteousness. Therefore, work at it. That's the way out of the woods. Buy of me, tried it, of, buy of me gold tried in the fire. Gold represents pure righteousness. And that's what we're to go to him to receive because of ourselves we simply don't have it. So we can't accuse anybody else because we're no better than they are. We really aren't. But when we accuse or put somebody else down, we are, in our mind, saying that we're better than they are. Our condition is better than theirs. Therefore, we are able to judge or evaluate them as not being what they ought to be. Anytime we condemn someone else, it is pure, ribald, out-and-out self-righteousness. No getting around it. So if you wonder if you're self-righteous and you have trouble seeing it yourself, but you can certainly see it in others, ask yourself a question. How do I compare to God? Then you can judge your own self-righteousness. Because anything you say or do that is contrary to his perfect thinking is self-righteousness. Because what you're saying or doing, you're saying is okay. It's, you know, I can excuse myself for doing that. You can't be excused, but I can be because I'm righteous. Well, maybe not really righteous, but at least I'm more righteous than you. That's why he says, don't say, I'm holier than thou. Don't come near me, I'm holier than thou. We're self-righteous to the core, brethren, every last one of us. We need to come to have the righteousness of God. Where every thought is in alignment with Him. Now, when you've accomplished that, you can start throwing the mode out of somebody else's eye. <laughs>